Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 14 of the podcast History Does You. Today, we'll be talking about the Napoleonic Wars, and we had an awesome interview with Dr. Alexander Nikabertzi. Um, he is a professor at LSU Shreveport, and we had an almost two-hour-long conversation um, and it did an extensive overview of the Napoleonic conflicts. Uh, but before we get into that, I always encourage you to follow us on Instagram, or uh, Facebook at History Does You, or subscribe or follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts so you can keep up to date with uh, upcoming episodes and episodes that are released or any other podcast form. We're on uh, almost 10 platforms, and we'll continue to do a weekly episode to hopefully keep you entertained during uh, these trying times. But to kind of get into some background of the Napoleonic Wars, uh, we can get right into it. Really... From 1500 to now is sort of what many historians uh, contend is sort of the rise of the modern sort of era that we're sort of in. So the rise of the nation state, um, the enlightenment, uh, the changes in uh, military doctrine and weapons and technology and tactics all really begins to change from 1500 to now. And really from 1500 to 1800, which was the around the start of the Napoleonic conflicts, Europe was pretty much in a constant state of warfare, whether it was over you know colonies in North and South America, whether it was over territories in Europe, whether it was over uh, dynastic claims to different uh, provinces in Europe. For the most part, Europe, again, had been in this constant state of warfare for an extensive period. So this really leads to perpetual conflict and ever-evolving geopolitical alliances as, again, as we talked about a couple episodes in the Ottoman Habsburg Wars, this concept of the rise of the nation state. So countries and geopolitical institutions essentially looking out for themselves rather than uh, conforming to different alliances and all that. But I really want to get into the period between 1700 and the Napoleonic Wars because it's a critical point in how this conflict arises. As specifically, there was the Thirty Years' War uh, during the mid 1600s between the Protestants and the Catholics. So there was that during the mid 1500s, there was the split off between the Church, uh, obviously under Martin Luther and a lot of other different uh, Christian leaders that were fed up with uh, the Catholic Church and the way that the Pope and the uh, church was preaching and teaching and all that really leads to not only split in the religion, but split between different countries, specifically England begins to turn Protestant, um, France stays Catholic, Spain stays Catholic, uh, a lot of Eastern European countries, I believe, turn Protestant. But anyways, that leads to a constant state of warfare and a very bloody conflict that leaves most of Europe ravaged. And that sort of leads into the mid-1700s, which, again, you see the same sort of alliances fighting each other. You see Great Britain um, fighting against France and Spain constantly. And it's really these sort of dueling alliances. And always at the center of these conflicts are France and um, England. And obviously, they had the Hundred Years' War in the medieval period. So uh, for the vast majority of history, England and France have always, always been at each other's throats over you know, different things. And one of the interesting things that always changes during this time is the rise in militarism and the change in technology. Uh, specifically, we see the development of 
uh, muskets. We see the development of cannons. We see the development of professional armies, which was something sort of new. It obviously wasn't a new concept. For example, the Romans had a professional military. There were plenty of ancient empires that had professional militaries, but we sort of see this indoctrination of military institutions in these different countries, specifically with Great Britain and France and all these different uh, nation states that begin to see the potential of having a professional military. And this sort of leads, not a sort of arms race, but we see a development of certain tactics and really each country sort of mimics each other. And so they sort of use the same weapons, they sort of use the same tactics. And this leads to sort of what a lot of historians call the middle power era, where countries really mimicked each other economically, militarily, politically, all these different things. So each country was sort of vying for, you know, different geopolitical interests, whether that was in Europe or across the globe. Another key thing that sort of leads in the 1700s is uh, the Seven Years' War and the Revolutionary War in the United States. I think those are two key contributing factors to the rise uh, to the French Revolution and to the rise of Napoleon. So the Seven Years' War, uh, some historians Uh, argue that this was the first true global conflict or first world war. A lot of people dispute that. But anyways, there was fighting between different alliances. Um, Specifically, the alliances were Great Britain and Prussia against France, the Austrian Habsburg Empire, and Russia. And Britain and France were mainly fighting each other in North America while Prussia was fighting uh, in Europe against Russia and the Ottoman, or against the uh, Habsburgs. And eventually, uh, the alliance of Britain and uh, France wins this conflict. So France loses a lot of territory in North America. The Prussians defeat and take some territory from the Habsburgs and the Russians. And it's only 50 years later that all of these countries are allied against Napoleonic France. But before that, they are fighting each other, uh, which was sort of convenient in how alliances were sort of changing uh, depending on what geopolitical interests each country was trying to pursue. Now, the uh, American Revolution came directly out of the Seven Years' War because, uh, as we talked about a couple episodes and uh, Roger Crowley mentioned, it came down to money, money, and money. And it cost a tremendous amount of resources and manpower to wage these sort of global conflicts where we were starting to become the sort of norm where you saw different um, fighting over different fronts, you know, really across the world. But this leaves France, and this leaves pretty much every single country in a tremendous amount of debt. And this is pretty much where countries basically say, well, we'll just put this on the credit card and, you know, pay for it later. And one of those consequences is for Great Britain, for example, was to just up taxes in the colonies uh, to make up for the debts that they accumulated during that conflict. Obviously, the uh, colonists didn't like that. And we see the uh, independence of the United States in 1776, which eventually winning this conflict. But another key aspect is France and Spain supported the American Revolution heavily. They spent resources, they sent uh, naval assets to uh, fight against the British Navy and to help them out, but that was also a tremendous strain on resources for both France and Spain and put uh, both of those countries deeper into debt. And it's important because we see the sort of rise of populism, the sort of rise of class divides, and that really leads into the French Revolution and the rise of Napoleon. And really, that's just some background into what was going on in Europe into the lead up of the Napoleonic conflicts. Uh, We had an almost two-hour conversation, as I mentioned earlier, with Dr. Alexander uh, Mikhabertzi, who just came out with a new book, um, 
called the Napoleonic Wars of Global History, where he basically argues that the Napoleonic Wars were not limited to Europe, but were a wide-ranging, world-changing geopolitical conflict that had implicit implications on for both of Europe and across the globe. It was a really super interesting conversation. It was almost two hours, so there are some hiccups along the way, uh, specifically getting interrupted by dogs. Uh, I'm also recording at my house, so there was vacuum and there's always noise, so I apologize for that uh, if there's background noise during that. Um, I'm going to continue to try my best to make sure that the audio quality is the best that it can be. But anyways, it was a super long conversation, and we really do a broad overview, so we don't really get into super... Uh, finite details of different things, but we pretty much start with the French Revolution and then go into the different uh, wars of coalitions. We also talked about the continental system. Uh, we talked about the, you know, the Peninsular War and the later invasions of Russia and fighting Germany. Um, and eventually, and also the War of 1812, which he argues, again, was a direct uh, result of the Napoleonic conflicts. And, um, and really, we see kind of the impact that these wars had on Europe. Uh, so I really hope you enjoy this interview. Uh, it's definitely one of my favorites. And uh, yeah. On today's podcast, we're lucky to welcome welcome on Dr. Alexander McCabertse. Uh, he's professor of history at LSU Shreveport. Uh, he is an award-winning author and the editor of almost two dozen books on military history of Europe and the Middle East. His book, The Russian Officer Corps and the Revolutionary Napoleonic Wars, was the winner of the 2005 Literary Award of the International Napoleonic Society. While the Battle of Borodino, Napoleon versus Kutuzov, won the 2008 Literary Award of the International Napoleonic Society, and his most recent book is The Napoleonic Wars: A Global History. So, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Riley. I really appreciate you having me here. Uh, and just to start off with some broader questions, uh, what is your favorite part of history to research and talk about? Why is it your favorite, and why have you focused so much on the Napoleonic Wars? <laughs> Uh, that's a that's a great question, and um, uh, frankly, uh, I, I, I've always been interested in history, and probably you share that that element with. Um, you know, he, I, I grew up in a family that was always focused on history, uh, but uh, I didn't in, imagine myself as a historian. I started my career as a lawyer. I went to when I was about your age and was thinking, you know, what I should major in. Um, history was an option, but I was not sure what I uh, could do with the history. And so I decided to do law first. And then uh, later on, as I was practicing law, I realized uh, history is, is, is what I really want to do. And uh, especially in Napoleonic history. Um, and so uh, go, give me a second, please. What? What? Huh? Now you want to talk so I, I decided to switch from um, law to history and especially Napoleonic history. Um, so I think I have two favorite periods uh, in, in history to research. One is the Napoleonic Wars, Napoleonic era that I've written extensively about. And uh, the other one is the early modern period, the 16th to 17th century uh, Iran um, and uh, Southeast Asia. So um, I've done some research on it and a couple of books on it, but uh, these are two areas that I really int uh, find interesting. Um, and, and the reasoning will be complex, right? Every historian has his own way of, what, you know, reasons why he or she likes history. Um, I like for the complexity of these periods, for the uh, 
vibrancy of the era, for the colorfulness uh, of it, for the great people, you know, just great characters that populate it. Mm-hmm. And what are some of the challenges that you have encountered while researching history? Um, there's a, a few, of course. Um, one of the challenges is this. The further back you go, the less uh, the lesser of a volume of sources that you really have. Um, and the the opposite is true. The the closer you get to modern day era, especially present day 20th century, uh, the amount of material is overwhelming. So um, that is true for the Napoleonic Wars, is that much of what has been written in the past 200 years was written uh, of, uh, it was written without full uh, use of archival sources. And once you get to the archives and see really the volume of material that is still there, untapped and unused, it, it's staggering. So that's one of the issues, so is, is, is ability to process together and then process enormous amounts of material uh, to produce a, cha- a chapter or an article or, or a book. So that in itself is a challenge. Another challenge, and, and that's not necessarily Napoleonic, but overall is this. There is a famous uh, uh, proverb, uh, supposedly Nigerian, but um, I, I'm not sure, uh, that says, until lions have their historians, tales of the hunts shall always glorify the hunter. And what it, uh, and uh, I was a young man when I read that proverb and uh, it stuck with me in the sense that when I try to write books, I try to consult a variety of points of view so that it's not only the perspective of, of a hunter, but the lions are also spoken for. And that in itself is challenging, especially when you're writing uh, a history that is of international character that it, uh, forces you to consult uh, sources in variety of languages. So for the last book that you mentioned on the global history of Napoleonic Wars, uh, I've consulted sources in in over uh, more than half a dozen languages, I think eight or nine languages, uh, just to make sure that I got their perspectives correct. So that itself is, is quite challenging. So we have some background now on what we'll be talking about today is the Napoleonic Wars, and we'll start off, and my first question would be, what led to the French Revolution and how did the rest of Europe react? Um, the French Revolution was the result of a series of complex phenomenons and developments, um, some short-term and some long-term. Uh, one of the problems that France faced and why the revolution takes place in France and not, let's say, in Russia or, or, or it, it, parts of Italy or Austria was that France experienced uh, important changes, economic and social changes, uh, through the uh, 17th and then 18th century. So we see France developing this um, market-based economic reality where the commercial, the role of commerce in, in France's economy is much higher, much larger than in Austria or Russia or Prussia. There is a much larger class of, uh, of people that we now call bourgeoisie, right? The middle class, people who are engaged in commercial activity have a lot of money, but not necessarily have a status to, or legal status to show for it. Uh, and uh, the, 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 the result, what we see is the grievance that these people have, because uh, legally France was divided in three 
orders, three estates as they were called. The first estate were the clergymen and they had uh, a very privileged status, didn't pay taxes, but collected taxes. Uh, the second order was that of uh, the nobility, also privileged class, didn't uh, pay, well, paid only nominal taxes, uh, essentially were exempt from vast majority of taxes and yet could claim their own taxes, like the, the seigneurial dues. And then we have this third class, the third estate that involved everyone else who was not privileged um, in a privileged class. And so people here, right, in the third estate paid a, a lot of uh, a lot of taxes. They, they had an issues of, of privilege versus non-privilege, which uh, exasperated a lot, a lot of people. Uh, and, and out of this exasperation, we see the rise of, of this belief that something has to change. And that belief is strengthened because of two crucial developments of the 18th century. The first one is the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment creates intellectual turmoil in France. It, it unleashes the ideas of rational thinking, rational approach to governance, to society. Think about people like uh, Montesquieu and, and his Spirit of Laws published back in 1748 that argued that the government must be rationally organized Right, it needs to be comprised of three branches with checks and balances. And uh, how, with some background on the French Revolution, how did Napoleon? Hold on, hold on. Do, can you hear that in the background? Uh, it's not gonna. Uh, yeah, sorry. That's. Um, um, I can. Give me a sec. I can move yeah. uh, downstairs so it's not so noisy. I apologize. No Sorry about that. Oh, no problem. Don't worry. I mean, things happen. <laughs> Lots <laughs> of activities in my house. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, uh, let me finish the uh, question and uh, you, can, you can proceed. Yeah. So two two developments, right? Uh, the first one was the intellect, uh, the Enlightenment that produced intellectual turmoil in France with philosophers such as Montesquieu, Rousseau and Voltaire all talking about the need for a rational approach to governance, the rational approach to, uh, to society as a whole. And out of the Enlightenment came a lot of intellectual uh, questioning that underpinned the French Revolution. Rousseau was, you know, so to speak, the Bible of revolutionaries because of his emphasis on uh, popular sovereignty, direct democracy, right, people's involvement in politics. But the second major problem that France experiences is a financial crisis. And here we can look at a variety of issues within this, this problem. One is the legacy of the previous kings of France from Louis XIV, who is usually associated with the glorious age of France. But in reality, 
left France virtually bankrupt and, and you know, left his you know, successors with the problem of, of debt. Or Louis XV, whose wars, whether it's the War of Austrian Succession, Seven Years' War, or even the involvement in the American Revolutionary War, were not particularly successful. Sure, uh, the American Revolutionary War ended in the uh, defeat of Britain, but what was there for France to show for him, for this defeat, right? The, the French didn't get anything tangible out of it. Instead, what the France gained was the heavy debt, and that debt needs to be paid off, just like you uh, or any one of us have a credit card, and we charge things on the credit card, and then we expect it to pay back the debt, right, with the percentage on it, so was France. And unfortunately for the French, or maybe fortunately, right, depends on your point of view, the French charged so much to the, on their credit card in the 18th century that by 1789, they were paying more just to make a payment on the debt than they were actually taking in as a revenue. So clearly something had to change. And hence, we see this call for a, a state general, a medieval representative assembly that was supposed to gather and decide what kind of taxes they will have, what will be the extent of taxation, and introduce slight changes to the system. But once it gathered, once it met in May of 1789, it quickly got out of control, so that by the end of the summer, you already have a full-fledged parliament in the open defiance of the king, and that's how revolution began. Now, as far as Europe concerned, that's a great uh, in, uh, that's a great uh, question in the sense that depends on Europe. In many cases, Europeans, the European monarchs responded to the turmoil in France with, with a glee. And the reason for that being that France was dominant for quite a while. It has been throwing its weight for quite a while. And for many European powers, the problems within France were not seen serious enough. They, you know, it, but they were happy that France would, uh, had the problem because it would have forced France to deal with the problems for foreseeable future, and hence it, uh, the French will not be as active in the foreign affairs. The British, for example, looked at the events in France as a repeat of what they themselves experienced a century ago, right, in 1688 in the Glorious Revolution. Um, in, in fact, some of your listeners probably remember that it is at this time, within the context of these French revolutionary events, that we see the European powers right, taking advantage of the problems in France. And obviously we have Napoleon. How did he start off his life and how did he end up rising all the way to the title of Emperor of France? Napoleon was born on a small island, right, island of Corsica, which fortunately for him uh, became part of France the same year that he was born, um, in 1768. Napoleon, uh, France acquired Ireland from the Republic of Genoa, which owned it for centuries. And then uh, the conquest, the formal occupation of the island was completed um, in the summer of 1769. And that was important because when, uh, Napoleon was born on August 15, 1769. So, and by that time he was born in the city of Ayaccio, uh, uh, the island was already under French control, and hence he was born as a French subject, or the subject of a French king. And that is important because his family claimed noble descent, and there is still uh, a debate of how noble <laughs> the noble house of Bonaparte was. Uh, they did have a claim to the Italian 
uh, nobility right from Tuscany. Uh, but what is important is this, uh, because they claimed this nobility and because they were able to show enough proof to for it, uh, Napoleon was able to go to some of the best schools in Europe uh, to receive his education on a royal scholarship. So he was a precocious kid, but smart kid. Uh, so he went to places like military school at Brienne, a rather interesting uh, prep school for uh, children of nobility in France. Uh, and then from uh, Brienne, he went to Ecole Militaire, the famous French military academy, probably one of the most preeminent institutions of military education in the world at this time. Uh, next time you or your friends or your listeners are in Paris, and if you go and climb the to the top of the Eiffel Tower and you look down, uh, you will see on one side the great Trocadero Palace, which at one time was sup uh, supposed to be Napoleon's uh, uh, the, the place of Napoleon's tomb, actually. And on the other side, you will see exactly this Ecole Militaire where Napoleon studied. Um, and after receiving his education at the Ecole Militaire, he began serving in the military, in the French army. Uh, he was a talented, uh, very talented man, uh, especially good with history and mathematics, which is <laughs> uh, quite an interesting combination. Uh, usually, we, the humanities people, are not that good in sciences, right? Uh, but he was good in both and uh, specialized, uh, specialized in artillery. So he served, actually, in one of the best artillery regiments in, the, in France, uh, La Faire Regiment. Um, he welcomed French Revolution when it began in 1789, which makes him quite interesting and quite unique in the sense that he was a nobleman and the vast majority of the French noble uh, officers uh, decided not to support the French Revolution and actually left. But Napoleon was one of those nobles who stayed and supported the revolution. In fact, he became radicalized, uh, supported the radical uh, ideas of uh, popular sovereignty, even terror uh, during the, uh, the days of Jacobin dictatorship in 1792-93. He famously wrote an interesting book, Sapore uh, Bocquere, in which he espoused this radical ideology. And then in 1795, he saved the French government from a royalist coup. He, he was uh, very smartly um, deploying troops, uh, um, using artillery to disperse the royal royalist uh, um, at, um, the attackers. If you ever go to Paris and you walk around on the Rue Saint-Honoré, you'll see a small church in the corner. It's a Saint, uh, Church of Saint Roch, and you will see actually still on the on the walls of Saint Roch uh, the bullet holes or the technically canister uh, holes from the shots that Napoleon was shooting uh, to disperse the royalists. But uh, in October of 1795, he saved the French government from this royalist threat, and um, he received as a reward for that um, a command of an army, um, the army that was designed to go um, to Italy to defend French borders in South uh, East, but also to spread the ideas of French Revolution. And with that army, Napoleon changed history. And in the span of just one year, he not just uh, invaded Italy, uh, but defeated four enemy armies, occupied almost all of Northern and part of Central Italy, transformed governments there, and uh, he firmly established himself as one of the most successful and talented generals in military history. 
And once Napoleon rose to power and obviously won some of these victories, how did he go and reform the French army? Napoleon came to power in 1799, and he came to power through force. That's an important thing to bear in mind, that he was um, the man behind maybe not the first stage of the coup that took place in November of 1799, because there were a lot of politicians who wanted that to could to take place, but certainly he was behind the second stage, the forcible shut, shutting down of the government and taking the power. Uh, more importantly, uh, the people who were involved in this coup underestimated Napoleon's abilities. They thought that he was a simple man. They thought that he was just a general, a, a simpleton, and that they would be able to use his popularity in the army to achieve their goals, and then they will just simply sideline him. And what they quickly realized after the coup was that Napoleon was a very capable and shrewd man. And it, 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 it was Napoleon who actually sidelined the other members of the coup. Uh, and instead, by, by, the fall of seven, uh, by, by the fall of 1800, he emerges as virtual dictator. The, uh, he has a title of a first consul, and the title itself is an echo to his to Napoleon's uh, fascination with Roman history, right? The consuls were the great officials of, of back in the Roman times. Uh, but as a first consul, then Napoleon has almost unlimited power. In fact, if you look at the constitution that he uh, adopted in 1800, uh, it is one, I think the only case um, in, in history where a constitution, the fundamental document that defines a country's right structure and uh, uh, all the key institutions. Well, in French case, this constitution actually starts, uh, uh, actually names Bonaparte as, uh, as, the, as the person who will be in charge, which is in itself quite interesting. Uh, the article 39 says, the constitution appoints first consul citizen Bonaparte as, as a consul. Um, just imagine if our constitution said something like, the Constitution appoints George Washington as the president, right? It's un unheard of. But uh, as the virtual dictator of France, Napoleon had enormous power. And what he did is interesting. For the first four years of his rule, he used that power for, uh, for, for reforming, for changing France. Uh, revolution left tremendous problems, a lot of problems in France. And what Napoleon did is he used his power to to deal with these problems. Some he resolved quite, uh, you know, quite brutally, I, I would say, but effectively. So, for example, one of the problems of revolution uh, uh, has left was the problem of brigandage, uh, the problem of criminality, the problem of entire areas being uh, outside the law. And Napoleon solved this problem, uh, as I said, quite uh, ruthlessly by establishing a special force of uh, gendarmerie, the force of armed uh, police that had the power to shoot people uh, without due process. Uh, now, um, that in itself is extraordinary, uh, but it, it certainly was efficient uh, because within uh, within a year and a half, Napoleon restored order and stability in France. But uh, you asked about the uh, reforms of the army, and here we see an interesting situation. And that is, Napoleon is is known as the great commander, as a uh, brilliant commander. But if we dig 
deeper, what we will see is that he didn't leave us with any original ideas. What Napoleon did and what he's very good at is synthesizing existing reforms, existing ideas, existing practices. What he does is he looks at what is already in place and he cherry picks, he selects the best practices and then makes them the, uh, uh, the core of the French military. So he's famous, for example, for uh, establishing so-called core system in the French army, right? The core being a unit that has a little bit of infantry, a uh, little bit of cavalry, artillery, and auxiliary forces, effectively mini army that is uh, capable of conducting operation on its own. Uh, Corps existed before, but they were always uh, on temporary base. What Napoleon did, and that's where his uh, ingenuity, he picks this idea, a pre-existing idea, and he makes it permanent by creating seven corps in the French army between 1803 and 1804, divides this enormous army of about 200,000 men into the seven unique corps. Each has uh, in, in divisions of infantry, a brigade of cavalry, or artillery units, and the support troops. But instead of being provisional and, and temporary, they are permanent. And he trains them constantly throughout 1803 and 1804. He gives them a same commander, same staff, same headquarters. And what meant, what, what this meant was that for two years, these people had time to, uh, to develop a cohesion, to understand each other, to collaborate. Uh, so that by 1805, the French army, without a doubt, is the best trained military force in, in Europe, best organized and best led. And hence why we have this series of victories that Napoleon then achieves over the next five years. So in, after that, in around 1803, hostilities start between Britain and France. How did that end up getting started? Um, Britain and France has a history of uh, <laughs> issues, right? <laughs> mm. um, this period, this... Uh, revolutionary period is oftentimes referred to as the Second Hundred Years War. Uh, your listeners probably remember the first one fought back in the 14th century. That, you know, that war lasted for well over a century, I think 118 years. But this one also is well over a century. We formally start this Second Hundred Years War in 1688 and will not finish it until 1815. And there are many issues why uh, you know, France and Britain dislike each other. To start with, these are two powerful countries in the process of building their uh, uh, building their empires. So that in itself creates conflict of interest. These are two uh, states that are in active competition, economic competition against each other. Um, and of course, the history, the past history of interventions, whether British, well, English back at the time, English into French and the French into English political realities also developed a stereotypical view of each other where uh, they, you know, there are suspicions on both sides. Um, but uh, Britain, however, didn't want to fight France when the revolution began. In fact, as I mentioned, the first two and a half years, the British were quite fine with what was happening in France because they understood that this was the process of developing a constitutional monarchy uh, or, or the type that British themselves had uh, since 1688. So for them, it wasn't that much of a different. What threatened British interests and why Britain entered the war in 1793 was the French expansion. 
is, uh, as France uh, was able to turn the tide of war against Europe and began occupying territories outside the French boundaries, the British uh, became quite concerned. And their particular concern was about a region uh, of low countries, right? Uh, nowadays, Belgium and Netherlands. These were the territories of, uh, from where you can easily threaten the uh, you know, British islands. And the British were quite concerned about uh, over who controls it. So until then, the French had no control, uh, uh, but now they do. And so there was a fear that the French might threaten the British interests. Uh, was na naturally, the British are also concerned about French expansion into Central Europe, into Italy and all. Uh, and so the decision was made to, uh, to enter the war. The war lasted for Britain from 1793 until 1802, when Napoleon was able to negotiate a peace, peace of Amiens. Now, Amiens is an interesting treaty in, in, in that it is a treaty in which the British were outmatched, outclassed by the French. And they were outmatched. Uh, in, the reason why I'm saying is that if we look at the condition, the, the provisions of the treaty, then we see that France got as much as you wanted with British getting only the bare minimum. And there was a frustration in Britain over this treaty. One of the issues, for example, of this that this treaty uh, created was the treaty or uh, the issue of trade. Now, Britain, as your listeners most certainly know, was experiencing industrial revolution this time. And the industrial revolution made British economy growing, and it also made it uh, uh, very difficult to compete with them. Now, the Treaty of Amiens specified that the France should open its market to British trade. But of course, that would have been suicidal. Right? You open your markets, you get flooded with the British goods. Think about Britain as the China right, of the 18th century or early 19th century. China now produces the vast majority of goods consumed by most of the world because it can produce them cheaper in vaster quantities and faster than anyone else. Britain was doing the same thing in, at this time. And so it was very hard to compete with the British. Uh, and so even though the treaty said, hey, you need to open your markets to our goods, the Napoleon effectively uh, refused to open the French market because he knew it will bankrupt France. It will drive entire businesses out of, uh, 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 entire industries out of business. And of course that, um, was a problem because British really hoped that they will be able to trade. In fact, because of this, they recognized French control of all the other areas. And so ultimately, we have these two issues that result in the end of this treaty. One is the issue of trade, and the other is the issue of control of territory. And in the second one is the island of Malta that became the bone of contention because uh, British controlled Malta. Napoleon wanted them out since Malta was a very important island, strategic island to control of the Mediterranean Sea. And these issues were interrelated. The British said, we will not leave Malta until you open your markets. And Napoleon said, we are not going to open markets until you leave Mal Malta. And neither side was willing to compromise. So in 1803, in May of 1803, the treaty collapsed and we have a new war. Now, it's a war between Britain and France. The rest of Europe is still sitting on sidelines. And what ultimately leads to um, other European powers becoming involved in this war, specifically Austrian and Russian empires? Here we can uh, identify two factors. One is Britain. 
Of course, Britain understood that it's facing France alone and it needs allies to you know, um, just um, keep the French occupied or to distract some of uh, uh, French attention. Um, so British gold indeed flowed quite handsomely to the continent, to uh, continental powers in an effort to make other powers join the war. But second factor is more important in my mind, and that is Napoleon uh, overplayed, if you ask me, or he overplayed his hand. Now, and I understand why he did it, but not, that still doesn't change the reality. Napoleon used the, rea uh, the power that he had uh, the control of the territory that he had, uh, that France had at the end of the Revolutionary Wars, to consolidate French interests. So what we see is uh, Napoleon's decision in 1802, for example, to annex Piedmont, not simply to control it militarily, but actually make it part of of France. Uh, of France. Or think about May of 1805 when we uh, uh, when he makes a decision to declare himself as the king of Italy, creating a new Italian kingdom. Uh, now, again, he, there, he, he shouldn't have done it in the sense that if he wanted to maintain peace and stability in Europe, that's not an action designed for it. It's a provocative action. Or think about his actions in Germany, where he uh, begins this massive change uh, called imperial recess by, disp uh, uh, by dispossessing hundreds of imperial knights and different bishops and different polities of their territories and starts restructuring the Germany into uh, a new uh, German uh, uh, polity uh, they called uh, the Confederation of, eventually will be called the Confederation of Rhine. So all of these are very provocative actions and they are strong actions. They are uh, actions that are designed to keep France great, keep France strongest power in Europe, but it also alienates a lot of pieces of a lot of other powers. And it's these actions that then force Austrians, who had a historical interest in Italy, uh, to join the war. It is, uh, uh, it is these actions who, that force Russians, who had historical interest in German affairs, to join the coalition in 1805, uh, so that we have, by the fall of 1805, the, the so-called Third Coalition formed with these great powers united against France. And this ultimately lead to the battles of Ulm and Austerlitz. Can you explain what happened at those battles and how that affected the uh, coalition and the war in general? The 1805 campaign is considered one of the uh, masterpieces of military uh, history. The way Napoleon um, both planned and improvised it is nothing short of incredible. The war began with him uh, having about 190,000 men on the shores of Atlantic Ocean since he was planning to invade uh, Britain. Uh, but he received the news of this coalition forming about, uh, against him and with the uh, Austrians and Russians organizing their armies uh, in, in the east. And so in this remarkable movement, um, a massive wheel movement, he was able to take this 190,000 men, uh, organized, as I mentioned, in seven corps, and march them faster than it was thought possible uh, from the Atlantic coastline in the middle of Europe in just several weeks. Um, uh, the Austrians were completely surprised by this uh, uh, maneuver. 
Uh, in fact, so much that they, uh, their main army was uh, surrounded by Napoleon and destroyed at the Ulm uh, in October of 1805, one of those strategic masterpieces. In, in the one blow, right, he actually um, neutralizes one of his opponents. And then from Ulm, he, he pursued the retreating enemy, the Austrians and Russians, to a place called Austerlitz. And here Austerlitz is, is, is indeed one of the remarkable battles because we see one side, namely Napoleon, imposing his will on the other side, his opponents. He actually dictates where the battle will happen, how it will happen, uh, and by, by, by imposing his narrative on the opponents, he, he ensures his victory. And the, the way he did it is this. He exploited psychological uh, element. For example, when the Russians sent a negotiator to uh, talk to Napoleon, Napoleon actually used uh, the negotiator uh, to convey uh, an image of himself as a weak man, as a man whose army was in disarray, as a man who was uh, frightful for his future, which only encouraged the Allies to attack. Or um, another interesting element is Napoleon's preparations. In the days leading up to the Battle of Austerlitz on December 2nd, he's, he crisscrossed the countryside in, in, in search of an area suitable for the battle. He finally found one uh, just, uh, uh, just east of the place called Brun, uh, um, on, on the outskirts of the uh, of the town uh, Slavkov today, but at the time it was called Austerlitz, a small village. And what the, the, the area there is interesting because it's a, it's a rolling area, it's a massive plain, but in the middle of the plain there are heights, so-called Pratsen Heights. And the traditional military uh, approach would have been to, for one side, to hold the positions on the higher ground, Pratsen Heights, and then expect the enemy to come from the below from the plains and then try to ascend those heights and then you'll have a higher ground. It will give you an advantage both to see the enemy actions but also to conduct uh, fire more effectively. Imagine climbing up the hill as somebody is shooting at you. But Napoleon did something on her in unique in this um, situation. He decided intentionally to let the Pratsen, to leave the Pratsen heights. And by doing so, he effectively played into this narrative that he already was crafting, that he was weak, uh, that he was uncertain. And the Allies only got more uh, cockier, really, uh, and more arrogant when they saw the French army leave the Pratsen Heights. The Allies climbed on top of Pratsen Heights. Well, what they didn't know was that Napoleon in the previous days has reconnoitered, surveyed this area, and he knew that every morning there is a fog that covers this area a dense fog, and it's uh, dense enough that you can't see uh, beyond just a few feet. And that fog actually allowed Napoleon to conceal his main army uh, so that when the battle began, the Allies really started fighting without really having an idea where the enemy force is, while Napoleon understands where his opponents will be. They will be on the Pratsen Heights. And so through the morning, he expects the enemy to, to follow a certain expectations, his military expectations that he knows quite well. And then around about, uh, about 10 o'clock, 10, 10.30, as the fog dissipates, as the fog disappears, he re it reveals where the French army is. Napoleon gives this uh, order to uh, uh, assault. The French army attacks, splits the Allies into two, two parts, 
and then destroys each in 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 piece. Austerlitz is a masterpiece. Um, yeah, it's a masterpiece of conception. It's a masterpiece in how it was carried out, and it's a masterpiece because of the consequences. In this, in about eight hours of fighting, the Napoleon was able to inflict 36,000 casualties on his opponents, some 16,000 dead and wounded, some 20,000 captured. The Allies lost more than 180 guns. Next time you or your friends will visit Paris, you will most certainly go to Place de Vendôme. And there in the middle of the square, you will see this tall monument uh, made of bronze. And that bronze was cast from the cannons that Napoleon captured at Austerlitz. Napoleon still still stands on top of that column. losses were uh, less than 9,000, of, of whom only 1,300 were uh, killed. The results of Austerlitz, however, are astonishing. It is because of Austerlitz that Napoleon secures effectively control of, of Germany. Uh, the Holy Roman Empire that lasted for almost a millennia uh, disappears shortly after this battle. Uh, and instead, Napoleon emerges as the man in charge of not just France, but most of Western and most of Central Europe. And after these defeats, did the Austrian and Russian empires sue for peace, or how did that ultimately end the War of the Third Coalition? The Austrians sued for peace almost right away, uh, and they negotiated a peace treaty with Napoleon, and um, by that peace treaty, they were forced to get out of German affairs, and hence why I said that Napoleon was able to secure uh, control of Germany. That's by Treaty of Pressburg uh, that was uh, signed on 26th of December of 1805. So the Battle of Austerlitz was in December 2nd. Uh, but the Russians did not sue for peace. Um, they continued to fight, and it will take Napoleon another year, um, well, more than a year, uh, another yeah, year and a half to actually defeat the Russians and, and force them to sue for peace. So it's only a year later that Prussia gets involved um, in 1806. Um, how did Prussia end up getting involved in the war against France, and why did they declare war without uh, acquiring any allies? <laughs> That's a very good question, my friend. <laughs> um, uh, one cannot but feel bad for the Prussians um, because they have made a series of bad decisions um, at this time, which would cost them dearly. So when the Third Coalition was formed, the members of the Third Coalition asked the Prussians to join. Uh, but the king of Prussia uh, was uh, Frederick William III, and he was uncertain whether it was in Prussian interest to join the coalition. So he hesitated. He waited. And Napoleon helped uh, in this by um, effectively promising Prussians that you know, they will get rewarded with additional land um, uh, in, in places like Hanover. So that um, even, uh, even when the French violated the Prussian sovereignty, for example, one of those corps that was marching from um, Atlantic coastline to Austria, a corps led by Marshal Bernadotte, uh, actually crossed through the Prussian territory of Ansbach without asking Prussians for permission. 
which was a, a flagrant violation of, of Russian sovereignty and neutrality. But even that uh, didn't uh, uh, didn't cause the Prussians to join uh, the uh, the war because they expected that Napoleon will will appease them. Um, later on, they did change their mind, though. See, um, as as the war progressed and and, uh, and it seemed that Napoleon was in weaker position, and I just talked how Napoleon created that narrative. Well, the Prussians had uh, uh, hopes that the Allies might uh, welcome them, and so by uh, November. The Prussians actually have changed their mind and they began mobilizing their forces. In fact, they sent an ambassador to the uh, Russians and Austrians, but that ambassador arrived uh, just after the treaty, oh, just after the Battle of Austerlitz. And so he was forced, instead of uh, delivering the news that the Prussia would join the war to Russia and Austria, he was forced to cross the battlefield and go and congratulate Napoleon on his victories, um, on his victory. But Napoleon, of course, knew about this Prussian mobilization. And so after the Austerlitz, the relationship between Prussia and France began to deteriorate. Um, Napoleon looks increased suspicion of uh, Prussian, uh, Prussian actions, but the Prussians increasingly also uh, frustrated with Napoleon because they realized that Napoleon is becoming very powerful. After the Treaty of Pressburg, he effectively controls most of German territory. He's restructuring it, and by restructuring it, he is remo removing Prussian influence from the uh, from uh, from from German states. Um, they were also very frustrated about Napoleon's actions in Hanover. Napoleon promised that Hanover will be Prussian, and instead he uh, double played them and instead talked to the British about retaining Hanover or giving them back. And so that that's um, that frustrated the Prussians, this perception of Napoleon's duplicity. And finally, in August of 1806, there is an interesting incident where uh, Johann Philipp uh, Palm, a, a German uh, book publisher, uh, published a pamphlet in which um, an anonymous author um, attacked Napoleon, criticized him, condemned him as the dictator and, and uh, occupier, and called for the Germans to rise up and fight him. Now, Napoleon um, overreacted, if you ask me, it's, um, because instead of just uh, detaining Palm and confiscating the book, right, he actually had Palm um, executed, which was a way, uh, way drastic um, for, for the actual uh, thing that happened. I mean, Palm didn't write the book, he just published it. But nonetheless, what happened is this Palm affair excited a strong nationalist response in many parts of Germany, especially in Prussia, where it was uh, believed that it is it behooves Prussia to defend the German um, nation and the, the Germany, you know, the, you know, the Germans themselves, as well as the Prussian interests themselves. And so, in October of 1806, um, Prussia issued an ultimatum, which Napoleon never really responded to. <laughs> Instead, he just sent his army across the border. Uh, the entire war, right, uh, lasted just a month. In fact, it, two weeks into the war, it was already uh, won by the French. On October 14, Napoleon uh, uh, found the main Prussian army at uh, Jena Auerstadt and in a single day um, completely destroyed it. Um, 
so that by the end of the month, by October 23rd, Napoleon's troops are already in Berlin and Prussia laid at his feet. And what did Prussia's swift collapse have on the rest of Europe? Tremendous. I mean, it's it's hard to um, hard to really overestimate or underestimate, sorry, to um, to the the consequences of this war because um, imagine if you are Napoleon, right, um, and you have just won Austerlitz, and then a year later you are now uh, have won Jena Auerstadt, and you are in charge of virtually all of all of Europe. It's, it, it certainly encourages you, encourages you to attempt what most considered impossible, and you will see where that uh, attempting impossible will lead us, right? It, it forces him to overreach. He forces him to think that he's capable of doing a lot of things that, as you will see, uh, he's not. Um, but in more short term, what we see is this. Prussia lost much of its territory uh, by... Uh, by the treaties that will be signed at, uh, at Tilsit in, in July of 1807, uh, Fra- uh, Prussia will lose uh, almost two-thirds of its territory. Napoleon will then start complete restructuring of Central Europe and creating a new reality, a reality where um, it's not just France that is dominant, but it is that local government, local systems of administration, tax collection, the locals, uh, how the locals live their life will be all determined by the French. And one of the things that Napoleon did, and this is an issue that I discuss in detail in my book, is is that Napoleon, wherever he went, he brought a a set of reforms. I call it a Napoleonic package. And that part of the Napoleonic package was centralization of government, uh, the creation of a much more efficient bureaucracy, much more efficient tax collection service. All of this, however, brought government much more closer to the people. Uh, The central government became an intrusive force. And so here, therefore, you have this reality after Jena Auerstein, is that Napoleon does a lot of changes. And some of those changes from modern point of view, right, are progressive, you know, better governance, better tax collection, um, better of facilities, better education, all this, right? But from a lo- from a contemporary point of view, this was a reality of much more intrusive government, and and that's not something that people liked, or in, one may argue that's not something people still like, uh, right? In many parts, and therefore, after our Ian Auerstadt, Napoleon is facing this reality where. He is capable of changing uh, a lot of things in Germany, but he also, also is, is, is facing a growing resistance to it. Um, the more he brings the government change, the more the people look at it as a foreign entity. Uh, it's not German, it's French, and the French are, are the occupiers. And so in that sense, these, his victories contribute to the development of the German nationalism, which will play such an important role in the 19th century. And so Napoleon's able to win uh, a series of impressive victories and wins multiple wars. Um, it's around this time, too, that Napoleon begins to develop this continental system. What was Napoleon's motivation for creating the system, and what was it? The continental system is a complex phenomenon. 
um, and I like that you use the term system and not the blockade, um, because in, in my book, I'm arguing that um, when you say continental blockade, it looks only at one side of what Napoleon was uh, attempting to accomplish. Uh, and it is much more complex uh, than just the blockade. So overall, so what continental system has two key components. One is the blockade. So it is part of the system. And what blockade meant was this. Napoleon now controls, right, in eight, by the fall of 1806, by December, he controls uh, everything from the Pyrenees uh, all the way to Denmark, and then from Denmark to Naples. Um, so the massive territory. Uh, if we count to this, the reality that uh, Prussia, uh, excuse me, Spain was allied to Napoleon, so that's, you know, you can include uh, Spain as well to this territory where French influence was strong. And Denmark also was you know, allied to Napoleon, so that, uh, we can include that as well. Uh, so on on these territories, Napoleon um, uh, decreed that no one should be uh, buying uh, any British goods. So when we talk about the continental blockade, this is the blockade of the British commerce. But it's a peculiar kind of blockade. It's not complete blockade uh, because... Uh, Napoleon was still willing to trade with the British, but he wanted them to buy stuff from him. And when you buy stuff, you pay cash, right? So he wanted to buy, uh, to let the British buy his stuff and, and as a result, pay cash so that to, uh, to uh, effectively sap this uh, liquidity of cash from the British economy. And of course, to promote his own economy, uh, because the more the British bought, the better it would be. Uh, but in turn, right, uh, by blockading British goods, he will make sure that uh, the British economy suffers. But the second part of the continental system is what is oftentimes forgotten. And that is the reality that Napoleon wanted to create a, a Europe-wide economic zone. Uh, think about it as European Union uh, in of the 19th century. But it's not the same as the modern-day European Union. Napoleon does have in mind uh, a, a common economic sphere where uh, Europe has, is functioning within this one economic uh, uh, zone. But in, within this zone, France was supreme. So unlike European Union today, where at least uh, European members are considered equal and you see the right parity, relative parity between great European economies, uh, in, in Napoleon's vision, his European Union will be subservient to French interests. Whatever French wanted, they will get it. So it is French economic interests that this economic, that this European Union would have served. Now, he believed that by serving the French interests, uh, the economic zone will also promote local economies, so German and Italian, but it is France that he's thinking above uh, everything else. And overall, do you think it was an effective system? Yes, yes or no. Yeah. And, and what I mean by this is, is this. Um, the When the blockade was fully in place in 1810, it was effective. It, it did hurt the British. It, it caused serious hardship. Um, it did foster, it did promote um, economic developments in parts of Europe. Um, but overall, I think continental system didn't last long enough to show to 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 bring this um, positive sides or or to make sure that the positive outweighed the negative. 
the short term, what we see is hardship for many parts of Europe. Um, Napoleon banned, Brit you know, banned the access to British uh, commerce um, to many parts of, of, of Europe. Um, it, the fact that French interests were supreme also hurt. To give you an example, in Italy, for example, Italy uh, was effectively created as the market for French goods and the Italian uh, manufacturers were unable to sell their stuff in France when the French could sell it in Italy. And of course, that caused a lot of economic uh, hardship in, in Italy. So you see the effects of it are patchy. Some areas did prosper, but overall, I think economic the continental system had a more detrimental impact. My argument is that maybe it didn't last long enough. And then if it had, I think continental system would have worked as the cocoon within which the econ European economy would have grown. One thing to remember is that Britain is industrializing. Britain is very strong economically. No other country in Europe or anywhere else in the world uh, could compete with British in terms of industrial production. And so Napoleon knew that, and he thought that continental system would protect European economy from the British uh, uh, competition, and that will allow European economy to grow. And then at certain point down the road, they will be able to challenge the British. But of course, that moment never arrived. And do you think that Napoleon's motivation was in part because he couldn't directly confront Great Britain militarily after losing most of his navy at the Battle of Trafalgar? Hey, absolutely. Um, the fact that he couldn't invade the fact that he couldn't um, really bring this war to conclusion on his terms um, you know, forces him to choose um, other you know, um, the um, other means to to gain his uh, uh, goal. And continental system was that uh, the war by other means. And so we have some background on the continental system, um, and I believe this leads to the Peninsular War when Napoleon decided to invade Portugal. Why did Napoleon decide to do that, and what ramifications did that have for Napoleon? So Napoleon's engagement in Peninsula directly related to continental system because he believed um, that the continental system, for, to be successful, need to be implemented uh, all across Europe. Right? You can't do it in France and not do it in Portugal or Spain because that allows the British to sell their goods in Portugal, uh, and then that actually undermines the very purpose of continental system, right? In order to blockade the British goods, you have to shut down the entire continent, which in itself is astonishing, uh, right? Uh, uh, well, the, the Portuguese, however, there is a problem. And the problem is this, they have a long-standing relationship with England. It goes back to medieval period, um, yeah, this relationship has been reinforced uh, in 18th century when uh, effectively Portugal became economically dependent on the British. Uh, also, remember that Portugal has a large colonial empire and uh, they were fearful that if they would break with English, that the English Navy will be able to conduct operations against their colonial holdings. In any case, uh, Portuguese refused to join the continental system on the terms that Napoleon asked them. They couldn't simply shut down their borders to the British. And so Napoleon decides to send a 
army to invade Portugal and force them to join the continental system. So, and ultimately, do you think this was a mistake for Napoleon to do this? Um, absolutely, uh, yes, uh, because not as much maybe as uh, mm. in, in, in with regards to Portugal, um, you know, but it was certainly a mistake with regards to Spain, uh, because uh, when Napoleon began sending troops to Portugal, um, he decided to also take over Spain, and that was a, a mistake. And what I mean by that is this. Uh, we know that um, Napoleon's attempt to secure the Spanish throne will result in a massive uh, uh, revolt that will spread across Spain and that will uh, uh, develop into this infamous uh, Spanish quagmire that will sap so, so many resources and not to mention hundreds of thousands of lives. Um, he, sh he, sh he shouldn't have done this because there are other ways. Um, yes, he was right. Napoleon was right that the Spanish government was ineffective. He was right that he was quite corrupt. He was right that Fran uh, Spain was not uh, governed effectively. He was right that there was a lot of things that could have been improved. But it doesn't mean that you simply go into the country and occupy. It doesn't mean that you simply remove the king of that country by tricking him. Uh, there is a, a great quote in uh, Paul Schroeder's a book that, uh, where he compares Napoleon to mafioso uh, uh, because he effectively practices this uh, organized crime tactics when it comes to the Spanish uh, royal family. Instead, if you ask me, he could have done the same things, but in a much more diplomatic way. For example, the Spanish king had a son, and Ferdinand was clearly not a bright guy, but he was... Uh, he was willing to accept Napoleon's leadership. He was actually begging Napoleon to let him marry one of his relatives. So I think if Napoleon had allowed Ferdinand to marry one of his relatives, maybe a sister or one of the cousins or somebody who was related to Bonaparte family, he could have easily dominated Ferdinand from behind the curtains, from behind the scenes. He would have sent his officials there and those officials would have pulled the strings and the perception would have been that the Spain still has the monarchy, that it still has the king, and, but the king would have been led by French interests, right? He didn't do it. Instead, what he did is he detained both the king and his son, Ferdinand, kept them in captivity, uh, 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 which contributed to this massive outbreak of, of revolt and war. And ultimately, how do the British become involved in this? The British became uh, became involved almost immediately. I mean, um, the British, uh, the the French reached uh, Portugal and occupied Portugal in the fall of 1807. They seized Spanish imperial, uh, sorry, uh, royal family in spring of 1808, and uh, the British were already preparing for uh, an invasion of Portugal at this time, which comes in later that year. A British expeditionary force led by uh, a couple, you know, a, a young man by the name of Arthur Wellesley, the future Duke of Wellington, will be able to defeat the French in Portugal and drive them out of Portugal, establishing British presence in in Lisbon and surrounding territory. And then uh, the next six years, from 1808 to 1814, is the story of how the British were able to use these staging grounds in Portugal to conduct a masterful 
methodical uh, but ultimately uh, victorious campaign against the French. And ultimately, do you believe that the Peninsular War was the main reason that, that Napoleon was ultimately defeated? My British friends and colleagues will hate me uh, for saying this, and I, I certainly make this argument in my book, but no, <laughs> it was not the reason. Um, certainly maybe one of one of the reasons, but certainly not the reason. Because in, in the book, I'm arguing uh, for an alternative history kind of uh, question. What would have happened if in 1812, in the summer of 1812, when Napoleon has this massive army, right, over 600,000 men, what would have happened if he had taken that army to Spain instead of Russia and had dealt with this uh, British threat? There is no doubt in my mind that Napoleon would have been able to defeat the British if he had brought the, size, the army of that size to the peninsula. He would have swept the British out from not just Spain, but uh, Portugal. The lines of Torres Vedras, I don't think, would have been able to uh, resist an army of that scale. Um, and then he would have been able to secure the peninsula. It is the invasion of Russia in which Napoleon lost so many men, so many um, artillery, so many uh, cavalry. Um, the, uh, uh, the invasion that results in a crushing defeat for him and the start of a war in Germany that consumes all of his remaining resources. It is that that defeats Napoleon and not the British in Peninsula. Now, they do play a very important role, There's no doubt about this. Right? Wellington's victories are remarkable. His ability to consistently defeat the French marshals that Napoleon sends against him is, is superb. But ultimately, he's not facing Napoleon himself. Right? He's not facing the main French army. Instead, he's facing these disjointed, isolated French uh, militaries. So one wonders how things would have turned if Napoleon and Wellington met each other uh, somewhere in Andalusia or somewhere in in, in Porto or, or Lisbon. Um, that, that's an interesting question to consider. And ultimately, it's around this time that Austria begins gearing up for a war against France. Why did the Austrians decide to do this despite losing multiple battles to Napoleon over the previous couple of years? Oh, yeah, that's a that's a great question. <laughs> um, the answer is, is again, complex. Um, some of it is the Austrian uh, w wishful thinking. Uh, because in the uh, summer of 1808, uh, when we see the beginning of the Spanish revolt, uh, the news spread, of course, across Europe that Napoleon is facing huge challenges in Spain. They also, um, that summer also happened an interesting event um, for the, uh, uh, at a place called Bailen. The French suffered a massive defeat. Not just defeat, we talk about entire um, corps, um, entire this unit that the French had, led by G General Dupont, was surrounded by the Spanish and forced to surrender. Never before has a French unit of that size was surrounded, not to mention forced to surrender. So it was a shocking news. Um, and so it, it, uh, for Austrians, it seemingly revealed that uh, Napoleon was weak. Uh, they thought that he would be um, stuck in Spain. They thought that he would be, uh, his resources would be committed to Spain. 
and that opened a, an opportunity in their mind to challenge French control of Central Europe. Remember, we've talked about this, right? In after 1805 and 1806, Austria is all but kicked out of Italy, all but kicked out of Germany. So all the previous centuries worth, imagine centuries worth of accomplishments, conquests, uh, power grabs, all of that is erased. Austria is becoming a second-rate power. Uh, and of course, that, that is a thinking behind the decision to challenge Napoleon. It is also important to bear in mind that Austrians were reforming their military. After the defeated Austrians, they began a reform process of improving their military capabilities. And so they believed that in 1809, they will be able to uh, exploit the situation, uh, exploit the fact that Napoleon is stuck in Spain to do something better, maybe get some of their land back. But it didn't work out. They did and eventually the Austrians are defeated after the Battle of Wagram. Do you think that French power ultimately peaked in Europe after this um, victory over the Austrians? There is a wonderful book that was published in French, um, to, uh, I think, um, last fall. Uh, and in that book, um, the French historian um, argues that the height of the French power was in 1810. Um, and I think there is a, a, a there is certain truth to that um, because there there is the debate when the French Empire uh, you know reached its uh, high was it at Tilsit in 1807 or was it you know in 1809 but I think this argument for 1810 is 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 is, is certainly interesting and I, I share it because uh, um, Napoleon effectively creates, after defeating the Austria in 1809, he defeats uh, this reality of the, the Grand Empire, an empire that uh, stretches across uh, most of Europe, um, an empire that has um, the control of tremendous amount of territory and, and people, not to mention uh, resources. Um, it is um, an empire where Napoleon can uh, start restructuring uh, both well, places and, and, and people and, and economies. Um, to give you a sense, France has never been has never been as large as it was in 1810, 1811. Uh, we talk about it, uh, a France that uh, controlled, uh, that had a population of uh, 44 million people. Uh, that's what, what is formally France, not just empire. Um, it was uh, France had 130 uh, departements, right? These administrative units that France is still divided in. Uh, France proper uh, stretched from what it what used to be uh, Netherlands to what is today Croatia, from what, the Pyrenees Mountains all the way to uh, uh, Prussia. Um, it, this is a territory that Nepal, uh, that that includes f places like former Piedmont, former Liguria, former Tuscany, former Papal States, the Illyrian provinces, uh, Dutch and Belgian territories. It's a huge in in in, in its territory. Um, but um, uh, so 1810 is 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 certainly at the height of Napoleon's power. But beneath this surface, beneath this veneer of, of strength, there are problems. And the problems uh, are multiple. 
It's a problem of local resistance. It's the problem of Napoleon overreaching himself. It's a problem of uh, trying to accomplish too much too soon. So although the French ultimately win this war against Austria, they do suffer pretty heavy casualties. Do you think that the French army was beginning to show signs of weakness and signs of wear and tear from being on campaign so much over the previous years? Yes, uh, yeah, you, I think you yeah, you have a point there. Um, not as much uh, at, at Wagram itself. Well, Wagram is a is a bloody battle um, which which claims a lot of lives. Uh, but it is uh, commitments in places like uh, Spain. It's the commitments in places like Calabria. See, we pay a lot. You know, we we oftentimes focus a lot of of our attention on on events in peninsula in Spain and Portugal, and not enough is made of the brutal war, the most monstrous war, as one French put it, um, in Calabria in southern Italy, where both sides committed unheard of atrocities, and when the French, where the French did lose a lot of people as well. So all, events like this, they did sap a lot of French resources and a lot of French lives. These uh, veteran troops, the heroes of Austerlitz, Jena Auerstadt and Friedland, these heroes are uh, in, increasingly either dying or getting maimed or they're getting exhausted. Um, now, the French army is still capable. See, it's still capable of defeating a major European power such as Austria in 1809. But uh, it... it but the victory at Wagram is not the same as at Austerlitz. Uh, and it's not just that the French are qualitatively are re, uh, declining. It is also that the other side is learning and improving. So after the defeats of Austerlitz, as I mentioned, Austrians were reforming their militaries and learning what, the, what was working in French case, why the Austrians were de defeated in in 1805 and uh, later on they will learn from the experience of 1809 and same applies for the Prussians and, all, and Russians uh, who are actively reforming their militaries throughout 1806, 7, 8, 9, all the way to 12. Um, so it's both uh, French army qualitatively losing its edge but the opponents learning and gaining that edge. So French power pretty much peaks around this time, and it's only three years later that Napoleon decides to invade Russia, which was obviously the beginning of the end of the French Empire. Why did Napoleon decide to invade Russia? Oh, my God. Uh, oh, um, I don't know. That's Well, it, I do know, but uh, ultimately I don't. Uh, I, I can name factors. You know, I can name reasons why uh, I think... Napoleon decided to go, so it's an issue of, uh, most famously, of Russia getting out of continental system, that Napoleon felt that Russians should be there. Um, it's an issue of the fate of Poland. Um, uh, your listeners probably remember that the Polish Commonwealth, the you know, Reich Pospolita, was destroyed by Russian, uh, Austrians and Prussians in 1795, with Russia gaining the vast majority of Polish territory and population. And then in 1808, Napoleon tried to revive this core Polish state, right, the Duchy of Warsaw, which uh, was perceived by Russians as a direct threat to their interests because there was a fear that Poland will be restored sometime down the road. And if it was, then Russia will have to give up the territories that it had captured during the Polish partitions. Uh, 
So that certainly is an issue. Uh, naturally, the issue of uh, Germany and Napoleon's control of Germany, where Russian's um, royal family had a long-term influence and interests. Remember that many uh, uh, Russian monarchs were married uh, to German princesses, not to mention that some Russian monarchs, namely Catherine II, was actually a German princess, right? So there are some, uh, you know, a lot of relations there, but it also a uh, factor of uh, uh, Russia, conflicting interests between France and Russia in places like the Baltic, or in places like the Balkan Peninsula, or the places like the Ottoman Empire, where the Russians were keenly interested in partitioning the Ottoman Empire, uh, grabbing as much land as they wanted, maybe possibly securing Constantinople, and Napoleon was unwilling to let them do this. So there is all these factors that that certainly contribute to to it. But ultimately, if you ask me, I don't see why Napoleon should have invaded Russia. Um, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, he could have dealt with the problems in Spain and Portugal first and kept Russians simply at bay. Uh, but he felt uh, in 1812 that he was he would have been able to bring Russian state to its to, to its knees. Um, which was a fatal miscalculation. And can you describe the course of his invasion and where things began to go wrong for Napoleon? Napoleon hoped that this war will be short and decisive. Um, and we see that in his preparations, we see in his reasonings. He thought that the campaign will last just several weeks, uh, that Russians will not uh, tolerate presence of foreign troops on their grounds, on their territory, that they will rush to engage him, and that uh, he will be able to outmatch them, outclass them, and defeat them somewhere in the borderlands. And um, he certainly had some point there, is that if there was a different commander-in-chief or the minister of war at the time, Napoleon might have gotten what he wished for. So if there was uh, somebody of the mold of, uh, of General Bagration, on whom I wrote a book, um, then yes, Napoleon probably would have won that war because Bagration and people like him all believed that Russians were able, would have been able to defeat Napoleon and they wanted to engage and fight him. But uh, unfortunately for Napoleon, uh, the minister of war and the commander-in-chief of the largest uh, Russian army is a capable, intelligent, methodical, composed, uh, overall brilliant man by the name of Mikhail Barclay de Tolly. Barclay de Tolly understood that the last thing Russians need to do is to engage Napoleon right away. And instead, he and the cohort of people around him uh, chose a methodical, protracted warfare. Um, and a few years back, I translated and published um, an interesting memorandum that Barclay de Tolly uh, read, and that was written by one of his officials in the Ministry of War, by, a man by the name of Peter Chuykevich, and your listeners are welcome to Google it. Just write my name and, and um, Chuykevich, um, Peter Chuykevich memorandum. Uh, and what you see there is Chuykevich argues in favor of a, a protracted war, the type of war that was that French were facing in Spain. In fact, he actually uh, specifically uh, uh, speaks about the need 
uh, to have a war like in Spain. Uh, and what happens later on is effectively um, uh, this memorandum playing itself out. Uh, the Russians refused to engage the uh, uh, Napoleon in the decisive battle until right September, uh, effectively. There are smaller engagements all around at Ostrono, at Mir, right, at Sultanovka, even at Smolensk, a, a major uh, battle. But um, the Russians consistently avoided this pitched battle that Napoleon wanted them to. And instead, what they did is they used the one key resource that they have and that no other European power has, and that is space, that is territory. Um, the Russians can't afford retreating four or five hundred miles and still be nowhere near Moscow when Austrians, if they retreated four or five hundred miles, they would be already in the Ottoman domain. Or if you are Prussian and you retreated four hundred miles, you will be in the middle of the Baltic Sea. And so this uh, element of space um, is used by Russians very strategically of retreating deeper and getting the uh, French army deeper into their territory uh, and forcing it to shed its resources, to stretch its manpower, so that by September, instead of half a million men that Napoleon led into Russia, he only has 100,000. And that, that creates a, a more balanced right, um, uh, military reality. And how long did it really take for Napoleon to realize that Russia was not going to surrender and to realize how bad of a situation he was in. That's one of those things where, you know, we've talked about Napoleon as being a smart guy and, and brilliant guy. And then you confront these problems where he really, you know, where he refuses to admit the problem that he's facing. And one of them is exactly as you mentioned, this 1812 problem. Napoleon captured Moscow in September. Um, he, the French troops occupied Moscow on September 14. And next, he spends over one month, over one month, 36 days he spends in Moscow, sitting and waiting for Russians to come and back for peace. I mean, it's, it's insane, especially considering that Moscow burned down and its ruins. Um, why couldn't he simply announce, I won the war? It, it might have been, you know, it would have been untrue, but I mean, it's Napoleon. He could have used the propaganda machine and simply uh, played it up as his victory. I captured Moscow. That's it. My job is done. I'm going to retreat back to Western provinces somewhere in Lithuania and then spend the winter there. But instead of that, he stayed in Moscow more than a month, ref still refusing to believe that, that Russians are, uh, uh, you know, that, they, that he hasn't won. By the time he comes to his senses in October, I think it's quite late in the sense that his army already has suffered a lot of men. Uh, Russians were able to mobilize their resources, and then it leaves only a sort of window time frame, right, to before the winter arrives. And so when Napoleon starts retreating, of course, then he uh, he's facing the coordinated attacks from the Russian army and the arrival of a of a cold winter front. Uh, now the winter does harm both sides. It's not just French who are you know getting frozen. Russians suffer losses as well. But uh, the French army, of course, is less prepared for for that threat than the Russian. So ultimately, Napoleon retreats and loses the vast majority of his army. How did the rest of Europe react to Napoleon's defeat? 
with cheers and excitement. <laughs> Maybe not outward because uh, French were still in, uh, in control of most of Europe, but certainly uh, anyone who disliked French imperial presence would have found the news of Napoleon's defeat uh, very, very exciting. Um, uh, we know that in Prussia, right? We know in Prussia there was an outburst of uh, popular feelings in, in against Napoleon and ultimately Prussians uh, came out openly against Napoleon and joined Russians in what will be known as a sixth coalition uh, so that by the start of by the spring of 1813 Napoleon is facing now Russian and Prussian forces against him. Now Austrians were much more methodical, much more cautious and careful. Uh, you can't blame them, right? You mentioned a few minutes ago that they have lost to Napoleon so many times that they had to be careful. But even uh, Austrians, by the summer of 1813, make the decision to uh, break their alliance with Napoleon and join the Sixth Coalition, so that by the fall of 1813, Napoleon is facing uh, a huge coalition force. Sweden, Russia, Prussia, Austria, uh, and Britain all uh, coordinating their actions against him and and uh, that he this would be the threat that he would be unable to overcome so before we get into more detail about the war of the sixth coalition which in 1813 uh while napoleon was invading russia there was also the war of 1812 which i think is an interesting caveat of the napoleonic wars how did britain and the united states come into conflict um, in my this my new book, I'm arguing that War of 1812 is is a part and parcel of Napoleonic Wars, and it's it's a manifestation of the global dimension of the Napoleonic Wars. Um, the War of 1812 was fought over the issues that were inherently connected to the war to the Napoleonic Wars. If we look at the uh, contributing causes, then you see that it started with the events in uh, you know the growing um, uh, frustration and tensions between the British uh, uh, Americans and uh, the French over the issue of trade. The continental system, right, the continental system uh, blockaded not just the British uh, goods, uh, but uh, or British commerce, but it also targeted those neutral nations, and the United States was the largest of these neutral nations, uh, those neutral nations that were conducting trade with the uh, with the British. Uh, now, the British also had their blockade, right? They had the orders in council that also targeted any neutral nation that conducted trade with the French Empire. And so Americans found themselves caught between these two powers and e e each of them targeting Amer American shipping. You know, the British also uh, conducted the so-called impressment, right? Illegal in principle and certainly unjust in practice, uh, where the British would stop uh, American ships and would impress, effectively force the seamen uh, to join the British uh, uh, service and, and serve on the uh, on the British ships. Uh, that was a, a huge issue. But it is ultimately the question of economy and trade that dominates the American thinking. Uh, think about the embargo acts. Uh, think about the uh, the um, uh, of, of 1807, right when Jefferson prohibited U.S. exports to the warring sides, or think about even though later on uh, the U.S. Congress will repeal the Embargo Act and will replace it with the so-called Non-Intercourse Act, 
which uh, closed American shorelines to all British and French vessels, uh, it still caused hardship on both sides. And in these conditions, Napoleon uh, outclassed and outmatched the, uh, the British. Um, because um, in, 18, um, in 1809, um, there is an interesting agreement, the so-called Erskine Agreement, um, where the uh, United States uh, pledged uh, to, can, to trade with Britain if Britain ended the orders and councils. Um, and there was some vacillation in, in, in Britain whether to lift this order and council, you know, the targeted neutral shipping. But Napoleon, as soon as he heard about this Erskine Agreement, he actually sent a word to the Americans saying, hey, don't worry about the British, I will do it for you. And so he issues the so-called Vienna and Rambouillet decrees uh, that, um, lifted, um, uh, that lifted the restrictions on American goods. And once the, uh, this decrees reached uh, Americans, Americans uh, then uh, sided with the uh, French. And uh, ultimately, in, in 1812, right, there is a, uh, a decision to go to war. Now, this was uh, a decision uh, that was driven as much by commercial considerations as it was by political uh, uh, considerations. There is certainly a, a, a growing um, interest in American political circles in annexing additional land, both in the South and in the north, and we'll see that during the War of 1812, Americans did attempt to invade Canada, uh, although that invasion will be unsuccessful. And ultimately, how did the War of 1812 affect the uh, Napoleonic Wars? Um, Napole uh, what happens is um, uh, United States supplied a lot of resources, supplies, uh, you know, food, grain, uh, to the European powers. So the Americans made good money during Napoleonic Wars. But when the war began, um, the, of course, the, the, the war prevented American trade from reaching European ports. And um, Wellington, for example, who is still fighting in Spain, was um, astonished to learn that uh, there will be no supplies coming to him, uh, which, of course, would have had a massive impact on his military operations, right? People, soldiers need supplies, they need to eat. And so we see um, Wellington, for example, be, uh, immediately beginning uh, other sources of supplies, including uh, Brazil and Egypt. And fortunately for him, um, two things happened. One is he was able to find uh, other sources of supply, especially in Egypt. But the second one was that the flow of American supplies continued even after the declaration of war. There were always enterprising American uh, merchants uh, willing to circumvent the congressional restrictions in order to rip profits. And so uh, American vessels did continue to bring supplies. Uh, so it is not uh, the... the uh, though the War of 1812 didn't have this direct impact on Napoleonic Wars as such. Instead, it's, it's the other way around. Napoleonic Wars has an impact on mm. North America, uh, since the uh, uh, British will have to commit additional resources to the North American front line. And of course, the United States will have to fight this uh, two, almost three year long conflict against the British. So switching back to the War of the Sixth Coalition, which is right after, pretty much right after Napoleon is defeated in Russia, how quick did, quickly and effectively was Napoleon able to rebuild his armies after he lost 
the vast majority of it in Russia? Uh, well, quickly, yes. Um, right, he returns back in December of 1812, and he has an army uh, in late April. So quickly, yes. Effectively, uh, not not so. Uh, yes, he's able to raise some 300,000 men, uh, but of course, these soldiers are not the veterans of the Grand Armée. Uh, so qualitatively, we see the decline here. Uh, many of these recruits are uh, are young boys, about your age. Uh, um, so they would be sent to battle without proper training. But more crucially, Napoleon lost uh, tens of thousands of cavalry in, in horses uh, in, in Russia, and those could not be replenished in just a couple of months. It takes about three to four years to really rebuild, uh, uh, to build a cavalry force, especially on the scale that Napoleon needed. And Napoleon lost a lot of artillery. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of cannons were lost in Russia, and those need to be replenished as well. So yes, Napoleon has an army in, in the late spring of 1813, but qualitatively, it's not the same army as the Grand Armée of previous years. Napoleon still, right, and again, it's a testament to his skill. It's a testament to the French soldiers' uh, devotion, uh, discipline, um, but it's also a testament to the other side, to the Russian and Prussian inability uh, to, to, to fully exploit the circumstances. Because in uh, May, right, Napoleon scores uh, two major victories at Lutzen and Bautzen, which uh, turn, seemingly turned the tide of war. He's, Napoleon is hopeful that he can win the war, uh, but then he makes a, a fateful mistake. And that is he agree, agrees to accept an armistice, so-called Pleschwitz armistice. He needs it um, in order to finish rebuilding the army. As I mentioned, there are major problems. Uh, the Prussians and Austrians also need time to rebuild their army. But they also need this time to convince Austria to join the war. And so Pleschwitz armistice is ultimately one of the crucial mistakes that Napoleon commits. In uh, The armistice will last uh, through June and July. It will end in August, and by the time it is over, Napoleon effectively has lost the war. Right, he doesn't know it yet, but we do. We know that he will be unable to overcome the odds that are now facing him, the odds of a joint coordinated uh, attack of Prussia, Russia, and Austria. If you look at the previous years, Napoleon faced coalitions but he never faced coalition armies all at once at the same time. So in 1805, he faces Austrians first and then Russians. In 1804, he faced, in 1806, sorry, he faced uh, Prussians first, then Russians. And then in 1809, right, he faces only Austrians. Uh, but in 1813, for the first time, he's facing a united coalition force, coordinated uh, that coordinated its uh, its operations. It's Russians, Prussians, Austrians, all in the field, all at once, all working together against Napoleon. And uh, he he found it very difficult uh, to to deal with them. Uh, and ultimately, right in October of 1813, he would lose uh, the decisive battle at Leipzig. And it seemed that the campaign in Germany of 1813 was the culmination of Allied military reform and strategy. Was it effective in combating Napoleon? Absolutely. I mean, uh, the the facts on the ground is that Napoleon is defeated. 
maybe you know Napoleon still has the um, tactical brilliance. He still has operational brilliance, but on a strategic level, he faces the situation where there are way too many uh, enemy forces, and the enemies are, are are conducting a very skillful campaign. There is a plan that the Allies developed in the summer of 1813, sometimes referred to as the Trashenberg Plan. And um, this plan was to avoid direct battle with Napoleon himself. Right? They learned the lesson that Napoleon is very good on the battlefield. So they decided to avoid direct battle with him and instead target the forces that he detaches for whatever mission and then destroy those mission, uh, those those forces. And by destroying them, he, they would effectively weaken Napoleon. And so we see that playing out throughout September, October, uh, or September, August, September, and October, where Napoleon sends his marshals to do something, uh, let's say Marshal Ludino, to capture Berlin. And Marshal Ludino gets, uh, gets crushed uh, uh, on, on this mission. Or MacDonald is, is moving on his own mission where he's surprised by the Allies and, and defeated. Or Ney is again sent on his own mission and is surprised and defeated. Um, so that by October, Napoleon figures it out that every time he sends these troops out, these corps out, they, they are defeated separate. And he's he has no good solution to it except for one. He brings all his troops in one place at Leipzig and he waits for the coalition to come to him. But that is not a particularly uh, successful strategy because uh, as a result of this strategy, what we what Napoleon gets is a, a, a battle of Leipzig in which he has um, um, about um, hundred about 195,000 men, um, so roughly 200,000. But uh, the coalition force can bring by the end of the battle or, or some 365,000. And there is a massive disparity in artillery where Napoleon has some 700 cannon while the coalition can uh, can uh, place uh, some 1500 against him. So all that taken together contributes to his uh, defeat uh, in Germany. So ultimately, Napoleon's defeated at the Battle of Leipzig. Um, after this battle, was the coalition reluctant to invade France or was there an immediate push to invade and overthrow Napoleon? So let me note one thing about Leipzig. Oftentimes, uh, people talk about Waterloo as being the end of Napoleonic Wars and you know how Napoleon, Waterloo has changed uh, European history and all. Um, I'm not one of those people. I believe that Leipzig was the transformative event, uh, far more important than Waterloo. Uh, it is Leipzig, this battle of the nations, the largest battle uh, that Europe uh, fought in the 19th century, um, the one of the largest battles in European history, certainly uh, until World War One. Well, the battle of the nations shattered the legacy of Austerlitz and Jena-Orstadt. What Napoleon had built over the pre previous decade is gone after Leipzig. So in that sense, Waterloo is important because it's a fact, it's a historical fact, but in its effects, it's in its consequences, it is nowhere as important as Leipzig. See, if Napoleon had won Leipzig, he would have been able to keep his empire in a reformed state, but still an empire. If he had, if Napoleon had won Waterloo, he would have been 
facing a, a coalition force a few days later than some other small village in in low countries in Belgium or Rhineland, and he would have been defeated there. So in that sense, Waterloo didn't is is not as important. Um, as far as your con question is concerned, there was internal debate among the allies on whether to invade France or not. Some were reluctant because they had memories of what happened last time France was invaded back in 1790s, early 90s, when uh, France mobilized resources. There was this call, uh, la patrie en danger, right? the fatherland in danger, the mass mobilization, the rise of these volunteers on all this. And there was a fear that that might uh, be happening again. But ultimately, it's the Russian emperor, Alexander, uh, who carries the day, and he believes that Napoleon needs to be gone. Uh, ultimately, it's the British who have sent their uh, foreign minister, Castlery, to establish connection with the Allies, who believe that Napoleon needs to go. So even if Austrians had some reservations, remember, Napoleon was married to an Austrian princess by now, uh, uh, even though Austrians might have had some reservations about overthrowing Napoleon, the other coalition partners had no qualms about it. And hence why by January of 1814, the coalition forces are across the Rhine and France proper. And ultimately, how long did it take for the Allies to invade France? And ultimately, what happens to Napoleon by the end of it? So uh, Battle of Leipzig ends on October 19th. Um, France retreat, uh, Napoleon retreats to France in December, right? In this, in November and December. The Allies start crossing uh, the Rhine River in, uh, in, in, on the New Year's Day, and the uh, invasion proper began um, in January of 1814. And the entire campaign, the so-called 1814 campaign, uh, lasted uh, less than three months from, from January. No, actually three months because it's, well, no, because it's formally, yeah, it's it's, it's underway in, uh, on the first week of January. It will be over by March 31st, so we can say three months. Uh, most of the finding will be done in the concluding days of January and through February. February is the core, is a crucial month where most of battles are fought. Uh, and even though Napoleon is still brilliant on tactical and operational level, um, in, in February he conducts a remarkable campaign where he defeats um, the Allies, uh, uh, four times in six days, he scores these uh, repeated victories over the Allies. But these are tactical successes, local successes, uh, that do not have the strategic outcome that Napoleon is seeking. None of the coalition force, uh, coalition partners uh, is willing to break. And in that, in that sense, this is a success story for Allies. They learn how to fight Napoleon. They learn how to stand by each other. They, they have concluded the Treaty of Chamon that solidifies this coalition into a fighting force. That uh, in the Treaty of Chamon, they agreed that none of them will break the ranks and will sign a separate treaty with Napoleon until the war is done. And so it, it, it doesn't really matter uh, that Napoleon won uh, the Battle of Montmirail or that he won the Battle of Auchamp or the the Battle of Chateau Thierry, those are you know, great on tactical and operational level, but ultimately on strategic level, they don't give Napoleon what he wants, and that is defeat of coalition. Instead, it is the coalition that steadily, methodically progresses to its goal, Paris, where Napoleon 
is ultimately overthrown. So eventually Napoleon is exiled uh, to Elba. Um, how did Napoleon escape the island? Why did he do it? And how quickly was he able to regain power? Well, <laughs> he was able to regain power very quickly. Um, but let me answer the first part of your question first. Um, so why he escaped uh, from Elba? And the answer here is this. Um, the coalition for the sixth coalition um, was united and, and steady in its, in its purpose as long as Napoleon was in front of them. Napoleon was the very thing that united them. But once Napoleon was defeated and, and, and gone, so to speak, we see that the coalition showed tensions, fractures, because each coalition partner has its own interest. It has its own vision of what should happen in Europe. So, for example, Russians would like to have the rest of or, or, or the rest of Poland or the, you know, the Duchy of Warsaw, uh, but that's not something that Austrians are willing to give them. Uh, or Austrians would like to recover a lot of their lost lands. Uh, Prussians would like to have not just the lost land, but some more uh, to empower themselves. And so there is uh, increased fractures among the coalition. Another problem is that. The, uh, the coalition restored the governments that Napoleon had overthrown, so or the Napoleon and revolution overthrown. So in France, the Bourbon monarchy comes back. But um, to repeat that famous expression, the Bourbons have shown that they have uh, uh, learned nothing and forgotten nothing, that many members of the, uh, the elites that came back in the wake of Napoleon's overthrown genuinely believed that revolution was the evil, that all the revolutionary legacy needs to be uh, wiped out and uh, that they need to go back to the good old days <laughs> before the revolution. Uh, of course, that, that caused a lot of frustration, a lot of fear, a lot of dissatisfaction among French people. Uh, French certainly disliked elements of Napoleonic rule. They disliked the, uh, his uh, dictatorial kind of rule. He didn't dislike suppression of freedom of speech, so the suppression of freedom of press, they certainly disliked that Napoleon limited their civil liberties. But there, are, there were sides of Napoleon rule that they certainly liked. For example, the fact that he codified the revolutionary legacy into the Code Napoleon, right, the famous Napoleonic Code. They liked the fact that he enshrined into law the ownership of land that was uh, nationalized from the church. Uh, so all those sides the French people liked, but the restoration of the Bourbon monarchy seemingly challenged those uh, uh, achievements. Uh, there was a fear that people will lose their property, will lose the land that they bought during previous years. Um, and so the Bourbon monarchy uh, aggravated the situation through a series of unpopular, very unpopular decisions. Um, for example, one of them would be uh, the reduction of the French military force so that the army and soldiers and the officers who used to be the very elite, who used to be the uh, right, they're the center of attention now found themselves cast aside. Thousands of troops were on half pay. Um, they certainly, a lot of people dislike the fact that the Bourbons uh, who for many years were fighting against France, were now in high position in government and the army, which stirred right angry 
memories and feelings. Um, and so there is a lot of disgruntled officials and soldiers who scattered all over France, sowing hatred of the Bourbon government and uh, contributing to the rise of a new phenomenon called Napoleonic legend. And what this legend was is this. It, it obscured all the bad things that Napoleon did and brought forth only the good stuff that he did. So Napoleon shone as a man of action, the great man of action. The failures of the Napoleonic regime were all forgotten or overlooked. Instead, they focused on his victories. It focused on the efficiency of the government. It focused on its accomplishments. And in that sense, uh, Napoleon uh, encouraged it. Right? He certainly wanted to be, you know, people believe that he was a great man. Um, and by February, late February of 1815, he follows news very attentively in France, and he realizes the government is very unpopular. He, there is a call for his return, and he decides to return. Um, he lands on March 1st, and by March 20, without firing a shot, without a battle, without any bloodshed, he's back in power, which is one of the most incredible one of the most astonishing moments in history. And ultimately, this leads to the what is called the Hundred Days Campaign. Can you describe what happened during that and what ultimately happens to Napoleon? Well, Hundred Days is, as you mentioned, uh, a, a period lasting 100 days that uh, uh, that Napoleon was in power upon his return. Um, he tried to... P, you know, he tried to uh, write letters to Europe saying, "Hey, I've changed. Um, that he that he didn't want to fight any wars. Uh, he certainly uh, tried to position himself as more liberal man. For example, he asked one of the leading French liberals, Benjamin Constant, to uh, draft a revised French constitution, which was approved." and created this constitutional monarchy in France, a formal constitutional monarchy, not the pretend one that existed before. <laughs> Here you have a, a parliament uh, that will govern alongside the emperor. So he did all these things where he you know, portrayed his liberal credentials and then more peaceful uh, Napoleon emerges. But one thing, and I completely understand for, from the critic's point of view, is how can you trust him, right? Where was this nice and cuddly and fuzzy Napoleon all these years, right? Um, how can we really give him a chance uh, and expect him to be the same man in four or five years when he's fully in charge? Um, once again, um, there is no, no guarantee that Napoleon will just simply uh, change his ways. Will this parliament that was established really survive long enough? Will it be able to coexist with Napoleon, who, uh, I will remind your listeners, Napoleon believed that a deliberative body, that is a, a parliament, is a fearful thing to deal with. He has talked uh, very derisively about representative uh, government. Um, and that's why, in, uh, ultimately, right, the European powers announced that they will not accept Napoleon's overtures of peace, Instead, they branded him, right, the threat of political equilibrium and stability of Europe and declared war on a single man uh, in 1815. There is a wonderful um, uh, declaration that they issue denouncing Napoleon as, quote, 
enemy and disturber of the tranquility of the world and declared him an outlaw. So ultimately, Napoleon is defeated at the Battle of Waterloo and he is exiled again, this time to St. Helena, where he eventually passes away. Um, and then soon after this, there's the Congress of Vienna. Can you describe what happened during that and what effect it had on Europe? Congress of Vienna is one of the most crucial moments in modern European history. Um, as I mentioned, I'm not be, I'm, I'm not keen on the Battle of Waterloo. It is important, but it is not as as important as it is often made out of. Uh, Napoleon would have been defeated if not at Waterloo at some other place in 1815. There was no, I don't see any outcome of that war except with Napoleon defeated. So the Congress of Vienna by then had already made, by the time Napoleon has come back, and certainly by the time he's defeated in Waterloo, he's already, uh, the Congress of Vienna has already made important changes. In fact, I would remind you that um, just nine days before the Battle of Waterloo was fought, nine days before the battle was fought, the Congress of Vienna was uh, has already adopted its final act. And that act, that treaty that they signed, uh, completed the reshaping of Europe and outlined this, uh, the, the lines along which Europe will be developing from now on. Um, and in, in this, Congress of Vienna is crucial because it laid down four fundamental principles upon which post-Napoleonic Europe will be rebuilt. Number one is the maintaining uh, a certain equilibrium, a balance of power in Europe where uh, European powers agreed that not no single state should control and dominate Europe like Napoleon did. And so from then on, they will make sure that there is a balance of power. And the way they would do it is by the great powers working together to ensure that not, none of them became too powerful. The second uh, principle was the principle of legitimacy. And legitimacy called for restoration of pre-revolutionary so-called legitimate governments. And we see that happening all across Europe. So in France, we see second restoration of the Bourbon monarchy. In Spain, we see restoration of the Bourbon monarchy. In Portugal, restoration of Braganza monarchy. In uh, Naples, uh, restoration of the Bourbon monarchy, and, and the story goes on and on. Uh, but part of this restoration, it was also constraining uh, or limiting the impact of revolutionary ideas. Now, they couldn't erase completely, of course, these 20 years of uh, change that Revolution and Napoleon had brought, but they tried to minimize it as much as possible. And instead of liberal ideas that Napoleon uh, spread um, with his Napoleonic code, with his reforms and all this, uh, instead of that, the Congress of Vienna offered a more conservative vision for Europe. So post-Napoleonic period is the period of conservative reaction. And then uh, the third principle is this principle of um, of, of uh, intervention, to be precise. And the principle of intervention is this. If the great powers perceived a liberal threat, a, a threat of liberal revolution anywhere in Europe, they would be uh, uh, ready to unite, intervene, and suppress it. And we'll see that play out in post-Napoleonic era, 
in 1820s, uh, for example, when you have a, an attempted wave of revolutions in Portugal, Spain, parts of Italy, and the conservative powers will intervene and crush them. Um, and finally, um, we talk about uh, the last principle, and that is the principle of compensation. And the compensation was interesting because, because of this principle, uh, European territorial map, you know, this political map of Europe will be reshaped. So it is part of the compensation uh, that we see uh, Finland being uh, given to Russia, or you know, formally recognized as being part of Russia, even though it used to be Swedish. But because Sweden now lost Finland, it needed some territory to compensate for the loss. So they gave Sweden Norway, and Norway Sweden will be together for decades to come. It is part of this compensation that uh, uh, Russia gains Polish territories of the Duchy of Warsaw, but then compensates Prussia with the territories in the West in the form of Westphalia. Uh, and so you see this territorial redivision uh, uh, that Congress of Vienna uh, has has done that will survive for decades. And ultimately, what do you think the legacy of the Napoleonic Wars is? The legacy, the way um, I approach it in my new book is is that um, of, oftentimes we focused on the Napoleonic Wars as having legacy for Europe, but I want to broaden the horizon and argue that Napoleonic, ha Napoleonic Wars had a legacy on many parts of the world, and most crucially, its legacy is far greater and more pronounced outside Europe than it is within Europe. Now, in the book, I'm arguing that Napoleonic Wars were perhaps the most powerful agents of social uh, change between the Reformation and the World War I. And I'm arguing this because these wars fundamentally transformed the nature of sovereignty in Europe uh, and outside Europe as well. And they demonstrate, these wars demonstrated the growing ability of European states to achieve new levels of social and military mobilization, economic production, that allowed them then to engage in um, new endeavors. In order to fight and defeat Napoleon, these European powers had to change. And they had to be very careful to how they changed. They didn't want to have uh, revolutions like France did, but they, on the other hand, they had to change to compete with Napoleon. And so we see Prussian state, for example, emerging more powerful after Napoleonic Wars than it was before the Napoleonic Wars. But globally, here's the legacy. Napoleon ultimately is a loser. He lost in Europe. His empire is erased. And France is in the worst in is the worst shape in 1815 than it was in 1800 when Napoleon came. But outside Europe, we see the legacy of Napoleon, and places like Latin America. Napoleon's decision to invade Spain in 1808 and overthrow the Spanish monarchy unleashed a tremendous chain of events in Latin America. These Latin American colonies that were beholden to the Spanish crown had to choose whose side they are on. Are they going to be on Napoleon's side and accept Napoleon as their overlord? Or are they going to stay loyal to their previous Bourbon monarch? Or maybe something completely different. Maybe neither of Bourbons nor Napoleon. And we see that playing out in all of these colonies. In places like Rio de la Plata, modern-day Argentina, which by the end of all of this will become free 
or in places like Colombia, Mexico at the time, the colony of New Spain, where the people had to ask themselves, are we the subjects of Spanish king or are we something different? And ultimately, the answer that they gave is we are something different. And hence, we see the emergence of this local, this new Latin American reality. States like Mexico, Colombia, Venezuela, Bolivia, Chile, Argentina, they are all byproducts of Napoleonic Wars. Or think about the impact Napoleonic Wars had on India. Yes, the British had a presence in India before Napoleonic Wars. But it is during Napoleonic Wars that the British used the threat that Napoleon posed as a, as a justifying grounds for taking over India. So people like Richard Wellesley, the brother of the great Duke of Wellington, uh, Wellesley is, has an imperial vision for India where British must dominate it. And during Napoleonic Wars, he fulfilled that vision by going after Indian state and forcing them to accept the British dominion. Hence why by 1815, almost all of India is under different levels of British control, which in turn lays the foundation for British Raj, right? the British imperial rule in India. So that's where I see the legacy of Napoleonic Wars, not just in Europe, but in, uh, uh, across the world. And just some final concluding questions. What has been the most interesting aspect of your research, whether it was your new book that was recently published or just your research in general into the Napoleonic era? I think um, just the sheer amount of new details that, emer that, that is emerging um, in the field in the last few uh, years. Um, you probably, if you're following the Napoleonic uh, studies, you know that we, we have just completed publication of the new Napoleonic correspondence, uh, which brings tens of thousands of letters that Napoleon wrote in one place. It's, uh, it was a massive project that my French colleagues undertook and, and shepherded through, uh, and now it's completed. And that in itself is an amazing resource to see all these uh, letters that Napoleon has written, all these policies, all these decisions, all these discussions he had in one place. It is remarkable. But it also, um, the amount of new material in, in terms of letters and memoirs and diaries that came to, to light. Uh, my good friend, uh, British historian uh, Gareth Glover, for example, has published a remarkable set of books on Battle of Waterloo where he, uh, it's a multiple volumes set uh, of memoirs and diaries of letters uh, written by British, uh, German and other participants of the battle. Much of it was unknown and now we have all, all this material uh, that gives us a better appreciation uh, for diversity of experiences, uh, the, the diversity of viewpoints, which, which in turn enrich our historical uh, understanding uh, of the past. So I think that that is what I find very interesting nowadays is access to information is becoming much easier. Uh, the Google Books uh, with its over 30 million books um, offers anyone, you, me, uh, any uh, fledgling historian, uh, an opportunity with just a few uh, presses of buttons on the keyboard to have access to the largest library the world has ever seen to find information and then conduct research without uh, leaving the uh, comforts of your home, which uh, is astonishing. 
And my final question is, uh, what advice would you have for young people um, who like history or are studying in the field of history? Um, my advice is, oh, just, uh, the first one is to, to follow your passion. Um, I know there is, you know, I, I'm advising a lot of young people when they come to me uh, at my university. And oftentimes they have these concerns of what, you know, what we're going to do with a history degree. And it's a, it's a legitimate concern. Um, if you are planning to go into um, academia and, and teach in the college level, yes, there is a massive challenges with that. The market is oversaturated with PhDs in history. And there is always a challenge of finding a job. But there are other uses for history outside academia. Uh, and there is, I think, also an element of of quest for knowledge uh, that uh, is 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 part of human experience. So if you're passionate about history, pursue it. Pursue it with dogged determination. Uh, uh, learn languages. That's one of the things that will uh, is crucial to modern day historical narrative. Is uh, unlike the traditional approach focused on one nation, one group. We are increasingly living in a globalized world, so you have to look at the world as an interconnected place. And to do that, you have to uh, master languages, not just English, but French or Spanish or German. So you can appreciate the diversity of human experience. Look at the problem, a historical phenomena from multiple point of views, which will make your contribution so much more important, but will also make it finding a job also easier since uh, uh, you will bring a lot more uh, to, to the table, so to speak. So we just had that super interesting interview with Dr. Uh, Alexander. I'm not going to say his last name because I'm going to butcher it again. But anyways, I really enjoyed that uh, conversation because it really was astounding to sort of hear his perspective and understand how really in his book and how he explained it, how the Napoleonic Wars have a very important impact on Europe going forward. And in my view, the Napoleonic Wars really sort of ends this era from 1500 to 1800, where Europe was in this constant flux of constant warfare. And really it's between 1815 uh, with you know the Battle of Waterloo and finally the, the final abdication of Napoleon uh, to St. Elba. And it really allows these different nations to undergo uh, the Industrial Revolution. Uh, we see a lot of political uh, differences being developed, uh, specifically with Karl Marx in England, uh, kind of develops the first sort of concepts of communism um, in his writing. There's also uh, a lot of different things going on, really. And really between 1815 and 1914, the outbreak of World War I, Europe really was in this peaceful period. There was technological advances, but another big thing that I think the Napoleonic Wars had a big impact on was the development of industrialized warfare. And obviously the scale in which industrialized warfare goes on in World War I and World War II is obviously much bigger than Napoleonic Wars, but we sort of begin to see the development of these systems, specifically with conscription, um, with different military organizations that sort of last for a very, very long time. So it was really under Napoleon that the geopolitical and military institutions really begin to change. And again, as each European nation sort of mimicked each other in different ways, trying to get the upper hand on each other. 
So, and really the only true conflict between the European powers in between this period was the, you know, Crimean War, which was in hindsight, a minor conflict between Russia, Great Britain, and France. And another interesting thing we see is that France and Britain, who, again, had been at each other's throats for centuries, sort of begin to change as Prussia, um, in the later stages of the 19th century, unifies Europe and becomes the sort of rising power. And again, goes through something which is called the CD's trap, which is an episode, which is a concept that I want to do an episode on. And essentially, it's basically when a rising state is gaining power, the state, the states in power want to stop that. And that always lead, generally leads to conflict. Um, I'm reading a book right now by uh, Dr. Graham Allison, who is at Harvard, and he basically talks about this concept with China and the United States right now and uses historical examples going all the way back to Athens and Sparta and you know Rome and Carthage all the way uh, you know, to the rise of Germany, Great Britain. And this is still relevant to this time. So it's always interesting to see sort of the long-term impacts of these conflicts because we can clearly trace the Napoleonic conflicts to having a direct impact on a lot of different uh, political and military concepts in Europe. Um, so I'm not going to take up too much more of your time. This is really just kind of a summary of what I've you know, took away from our conversation and took away from the book, I really recommend it because it's just an awesome, you know, broad overview of really all these different things that I think a lot of people don't really realize. I think people, most people in the field of history generally look at the Napoleonic conflicts and see it as a pure European conflict, but he basically lays out how it was not a uh, geopol or not limited to Europe. The, the you know the War of eighteen twelve had a direct impact, and the British expansion in India had a direct impact, and um, conflict between Denmark and Sweden and Russia has direct impacts. And you know, there's all these different things that I think often get overlooked because we often focus on sort of the big picture. But by getting into these sort of finite details of the Napoleonic Wars, we see how big of an impact that it truly does have on the shaping of Europe from the, you know, at the beginnings of the 19th century and hanging into the 20th century. So, you know, that was pretty much everything. Um, and as always, feel free to follow us or subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. I'm always looking for feedback on this. Uh, we super 14 episodes in. I really think that everything's sort of improved in terms of having in-depth conversation with these historians and writers and authors. And But again, I'm always looking for feedback. I know I'm not perfect. So, Feel free to, you know, send me a message on Facebook or Instagram on things you think I can improve or certain topics that you want to see. I'm always open to doing research. Obviously, uh, personally, the field of military history is the one that I'm most uh, familiar with, but I'm always open to researching different eras of history and doing episodes on specific topics that you guys want to see. Um, so definitely feel free to send me a message. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. It was definitely one of my favorites. Um, and that pretty much concludes episode 14. So thank you very much for listening.